Well, we've been learning a lot over the past week about what it means to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. We started on Palm Sunday. We looked at eight different encounters with Jesus in the Gospels where he explained in his own words what it means to follow him. Instead of me saying it or someone else telling us, we heard from Jesus. You have to recognize you have no righteousness of your own to follow Jesus. You've got to be willing to part with money or anything else in this world. You've got to know God's power to do the impossible. You've got to look forward to the rewards that God gives. You must deny yourself and take up your cross. You must answer the call despite the sacrifice, the immediacy, and the intensity of the call, or maybe even because of that. To follow Jesus, you must count the cost. You must abide in His Word. You must love His as He has loved, and you must keep His commandments. So that's what he taught about what it means to follow him. From the beginning of his ministry all the way up to the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday as as we call it. But then on Good Friday we met together to remember the death of Jesus. Although he was innocent, he was condemned by mankind because of jealousy. And he truly did die because his death was in our place. It was why he came. So we talked about what it means to follow Jesus, even not into temptation, not into his death. We don't follow him to the cross or the grave. Instead, we identify ourselves with him in his life, his perfect life through all temptation. We identify with him in, our, in his sacrifice for us, offering himself up to take our punishment. We identify ourselves with him in his death as he took our place under the wrath of God because of our sin which is death. We don't follow him there because he was the only one who could pay for our sins on the cross. The only one who could die in my place, in your place, and then rise again. So as we follow Jesus, our identity changes from that false idea of I'm in charge of me and I'm the boss of me and I get to say what I do and uh, and God's got to be okay with that. Our identity changes from that to a loving worshipful dependence on Jesus Christ for salvation and for all of our life, now and eternally. And we looked at three ways that we do that. Baptism, which we do just one time after we come to the Lord Jesus and we identify with Him in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. We looked at communion, the Lord's Supper that we do here at Canyon Bible Church every month as a constant reminder of Jesus' death. We proclaim His death until He comes. And then the third way that we identify with Jesus in his death is daily, even hourly, putting to death the deeds of the body, living in him and in his righteousness and his love. We live for him. So we've been learning a lot over this past week or being reminded about a lot of things about what it means to follow Jesus. Our life becomes all about Jesus. His deity as God, his humanity as man, his perfect, acceptable sacrifice to God the Father to save us. We follow his life every day of his life, every day of our life. But there's one more way that we follow him. And as crucial as all of those other ways are, if it were not for this one way, all of the others would be, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, vain, empty, futile, worthless. Paul says if this last way isn't true that we follow Jesus, we would be lying about God, saying that God sent Jesus. 
We would still be in our sins, and Paul says that we, of all people, should be most pitied if this last way that we follow Christ is wrong. On Resurrection Sunday, we might as well just get up in the morning on Resurrection Sunday and go look for colored Easter eggs instead of being here. Now, there's nothing wrong with looking for colored Easter eggs. Thank you, brother. Unless your conscience is telling you, no, I cannot do that. But the key word is instead of. Instead of being here, if this last way isn't true, we we might as well go home and watch football when it's football season, or NASCAR, or golf. Maybe not golf. (laughs) No, that's all right. Without this last way of Jesus, at least those things would have some relaxation, some entertainment value, um, maybe not golf, but the rest of them, some entertainment, some relaxation, you know, right? If Jesus has not raised from the dead, we are worse than wasting our time this morning. We should be pitied more than those who spend the Lord's day doing whatever else they want to do. But Jesus is alive. Amen. When the women went to Jesus' grave, the angels asked them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And so not only now are we not wasting our time, there is nothing better for us to do with our time than to be here to worship our risen Savior and to worship Him every day of our life. So every way that we follow him in life, in those eight descriptions from Jesus about what it means to follow him, in the three different ways that we identify with his death, the most meaningful, the most important, and the most necessary things we need to do in our life are all of these things. But the one more way that we follow him is in his resurrection. We follow Jesus who was alive on earth. We follow Jesus who died and went into the earth, but now, crucially, now we still follow an alive Jesus, a risen Jesus. He walked the earth again, never to die again. How? What does it mean? What does it look like to truly follow the resurrected Jesus? Now, the first thing we need to notice is that it doesn't replace anything that we've talked about to this point. In fact, because he rose, all of the rest of it is still relevant. It still matters. It's still correct. So this is not irrelevant or boring or one of those, I really wish I could be somewhere else kind of moments. This morning, we will follow the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ into four realities. And he leads us into these four realities, these four truths that change our entire reality before God and before the world. Last week, we walked forward through the Gospels. Let's start in John and work backward in the Gospels. Start in John chapter 20. That's where we'll start out this morning. And with number one, that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ leads us into divine blessing. I don't know if you can turn the pages and write down in your notes at the same time, but that's all right. We'll figure it out. You guys are talented. John chapter 20, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ leads us into divine blessing. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus has risen from the grave. Mary Magdalene finds the stone rolled away from the tomb, so she tells Peter and John, and they run, they look in, and they go inside, and they find it empty. Verse 9 says, they did not understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So they went home. (laughs) 
Jesus then appeared to Mary Magdalene, verses 11 to 18. She doesn't recognize him at first. He, he tells her, go tell the disciples. He says, go tell my brothers that he is going to ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And so in verses 19 to 23, the disciples were behind locked doors. They're all gathered together because they're afraid of all of the unbelieving Jews. But suddenly, Jesus is standing among them. The doors were locked and the doors weren't open. He just is standing among them and he pronounces peace to them twice. And then he reiterates that he's sending them out as apostles with the Holy Spirit. But Thomas, one of the 11 disciples, was not present at that meeting. So look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's what Thomas said. He says, I've got to see it myself. I I have to see it. I need to touch it. In our contemporary language, we might say, Thomas was saying, look, I'm not an audible learner. I prefer visual. (laughs) I prefer to see and to touch. Then I'll believe. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, again, it's in a locked room, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, this is about one of the climaxes, like the the biggest climax of the book of John right here. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas now believes his statement of belief is just this high point, this high mark in John. Two verses later, John will tell us that is the very reason that he wrote this gospel, so that we would believe, that we would understand that that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. Look what Jesus says to him in verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas held out believing until he could see it for himself. And he does genuinely believe that that's the right proclamation to Jesus, my Lord and my God. But who does Jesus bless with divine blessing in verse 29? You and me. Jesus blesses those who will come after all these things happen and who didn't get to see all of this. We didn't get to see the empty tomb. We didn't get to see the stone rolled away. We didn't get to see Jesus coming through locked doors and coming into rooms where there was no way to get in. We didn't get to see all of that. The blessing here that Jesus calls is the favor of God. That's what Jesus calls to us who have not seen and yet believed, who have only heard. So it doesn't matter what kind of learning style that we prefer or how I would like to receive this information, this is how God chose for you and me to learn about Jesus. And, and by hearing this word, God didn't give us a movie or, about Jesus or a TV show. There's nothing wrong with the movies and TV shows that we try to use to picture things that happen necessarily. No, nothing necessarily wrong with those. He didn't give us a picture book. He gave us His word so that we would hear it. And by hearing the word of God, faith comes to believe in Jesus. We didn't get to see all of that, but we get to hear. 
And when you believe by hearing God's word, Jesus calls down God's blessing upon you. Did you see that? It's the blessing of God's favor, his grace, our salvation for his glory. It's the peace that Jesus keeps pronouncing to people, peace with God, peace with other people because of his resurrected body. It's according to Ephesians 1, 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that God has given us in Christ. When we follow Christ Jesus, the risen Lord, we're following him into blessing, divine blessing. But it's not by sight, it's by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says. Even though we have not seen him, this is what 1 Peter 1 says, even though we have not seen him, we love him. And even though we do not now see him, we believe with him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And our risen Lord, rather than emptiness, nothingness, doesn't matter, rather be doing something else, we have blessing from God. It's a reality now and forever for all of those who truly follow Jesus Christ. So, in our notes, a true follower of the risen Lord Jesus Christ is blessed by God. It's a reality. But that's not all. There's a second reality that we follow Jesus into. Number two, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ leads us into forgiveness and restoration when we sin. Forgiveness and restoration when we sin. Look ahead a few verses in John here to chapter 21. Jesus again appears to the disciples, seven of them as they're fishing. When they figure out that he's the Lord, Peter jumps into the water and swims to the shore to see him. It was the third time they'd seen him now after his resurrection. Look at verse 15. Now, we can't spend the time to walk through this as this passage deserves, or really any of these passages that we're looking at as they really deserve. But look what happens in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, Peter was the one who had outright publicly denied Jesus three times. When Jesus told the disciples, you're all going to fall away from me in Matthew 26, Peter said, well, They might all fall away, but I never will. (laughs) Peter said, I will never fall away. That's when Jesus said, really? Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. But Peter had denied Jesus three times. Publicly, strongly, forcefully, with a curse upon his own head. If I ever know that, if I have ever known that man. And though Jesus had asked Peter in Greek with the unconditional, selfless quality, love, agape, love, Peter had responded in the Greek language here with the brotherly, affectionate quality of love, phileo, and Jesus took that. He said, feed my lambs. Then he asked him a second time, verse 16, do you love me? Again, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Same words used, the same word by Jesus, the same different word by Peter. Jesus answers, tend my sheep. And then the third time. As Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, Jesus uses the affectionate brotherly love phileo, the same word Peter's been using. And Peter says, oh, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then Jesus again says to Peter, feed my sheep. Now what Jesus was doing here was restoring Peter both to fellowship and to ministry. 
Even though Peter had denied Jesus openly, forcefully, again, swearing upon his own head, I've never known that man. Jesus forgave him and step by step led Peter through a public profession of his love for Jesus rather than a denial. Jesus forgave that, that egregious, agonizing sin of just denying Christ three times. Not only did he forgive him, though, he placed him back in ministry, back in charge of others who cared for people as a shepherd. So in verse 18, and verse 19 explains what verse 18 means, Jesus told Peter, you're going to have to be faithful all the way up until you are martyred for me. That's what Jesus is telling Peter. Look at the end of verse 19. After saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Jesus restores Peter to following him. Well, then, as so often happened, Peter gets distracted here, and he sees John. He gets curious. He says, well, what about this guy? What are you going to do with him? Jesus says, verse 22, don't worry about him. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Jesus didn't say he's going to last forever. He's going to live until Jesus returns. He just said, if he does, what does that matter? That's not your business to worry about what I'm going to do with him. What does he tell Peter to do again? You follow me. Our responsibility is to follow Jesus. But do you hear the same call at the beginning of your life to follow Jesus, your, your new life in Jesus, the same command that's repeated all throughout your life, even when you've sinned, even when you've messed up. Follow me. Jesus says, as a true follower, you will obey my commands. You will love him, you will obey him, but you're still going to mess up, aren't you? And I know you will, because I do, and you do, and he does, and she does, <laughs> We, we all mess it up and we're still going to sin. But instead of that cutting us off from our Savior, instead of that just destroying the, the relationship we have with our God, Jesus comes and restores us. He leads us through confession and repentance to be restored to Him. So as we follow Jesus for our life, not just for a period of time, look at the hope and the assurance that we have. Peter, who denied Jesus three times in front of everybody, is restored and is serving the Lord again. The other disciples who fled, they took off right when Jesus was arrested. Apparently, they didn't even need to have this public restoration. They were forgiven and they served the Lord Jesus. When we're messing up, when we fall away, when we, when we sin, when we don't do what God tells us to do, when we do what God tells us not to do, Jesus restores and forgives when we come to Him in confession and repentance. So, in our notes, a true follower of the risen Lord Jesus Christ has forgiveness of sins once for all and continually. Once for all and continually and is kept for service to Him and for Him. He, he, he saves us so that we can become His followers, so that we can serve Him, so we can tell others about Him, so we can live for Him and His glory. Now, we're halfway through the four realities that the risen Lord Jesus Christ leads us into. But I want to pause here for just a minute because I want us to think about what this really looks like. The Bible teaches that Jesus' work to save us was to achieve the result of making saints out of sinners. We're sinners. This room is a room full of sinners. Murderers, adulterers, haters of God, haters of other people, in our hearts, we've been angry at people. Jesus says, when you've done that, you've murdered. Not, it's not the same thing. But we're guilty of sins. 
But Jesus, when he saves us, takes us out of being sinners and turns us into saints, set-apart ones, sanctified, holy ones. We've studied this before, but the reason God chose us before the foundation of the world was for holiness. The prayer request from Jesus to God the Father, his own Father, was that we would be set apart, made holy, all of us who follow him. The reason that Christ died was to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before his Father. Christ ransomed us away from the futile ways to holiness. God commands those of us who follow Jesus to be holy, and God's very expressed will for our life is holiness, sanctification. That's all part of what it means to be saved. Christ makes us holy before God positionally, but then He works within us to make us holy practically in our life. While the first one is immediate and eternal, the second one is progressive and eventual. And we've just talked about how He uses our will, He uses our desire to to bring that about, to make that happen. It's not us who do it, He does it in us, but we have a part to play in serving and working and striving and doing these things that He's called us to do. So it's not just sit back, let go and let God. We strive, we work after we're saved, after we're saved because God uses that to bring about His purpose of our holiness. Now, many people in the church have not been taught these things. They think, look, I've got my golden ticket. I'm going to heaven. I'm just supposed to ride out my time here. And I'm supposed to hope that God will just give me the best life that I can have and that it can be the most comfortable that God can make it for me because I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back. He's done everything. I don't have to do anything. That's what many believe and even teach. I don't even have to think about God's Word. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's just boring old words on a page. This is called being licentious. I've got license to do whatever I want or don't do whatever I don't want to do. I don't want to obey. I don't want to do anything. I just want to do what I want to do. And we've seen that's not biblical. That's licentious. It's licentiousness. But others of us, in their pursuit to to bring glory to God, can be tempted to fall into the opposite of that, which is called legalism. I want to do my best. I want to be the best I can be for my Lord, for my Savior. And so we work really hard to do everything good and everything right. And when things aren't quite right, we get upset. (laughs) We get impatient. We get stressed. And if anybody calls us on it, we just say, well, I'm just a perfectionist. And we say that like it's a good thing. When it's really an incipient form of that legalism. See, in perfectionism, we're striving for the best, we're working for the best, we're expecting the best, we want everything to be perfect, and when it's all perfect, that's, according to what we see as perfect, that's when we're happy, that's when we're satisfied, that's when we're content. I've got things perfect. Here's how it's legalism. That standard of perfect that we've imagined and that we've invented and that we've put in place is so far below God's perfect standard of holiness in love It's really just how we want things. I'm just getting my way. So we've set up an alternate standard to God's standard. And then we work really hard and we achieve that really high standard that we set. And it required work and energy and dedication and people praise us when we reach it. And we feel really good about ourselves and all of our achievements because they were so high and we've attained them. And then we rest. Again, I can rest in my ability to achieve perfection, greatness, what, what I was looking for. We rest in our own abilities to meet our really high standards. That's legalistic perfectionist. 
it's religion, we turn our eyes to those around us. And we hold them to that same standard, and then we get really disappointed with them when they don't meet that standard. We get disappointed, we get frustrated, we get angry at other people. You know, how can they say they love God? They're not doing what I'm doing. How can they say they love me? Don't they know that I want things this way and that this is the perfect way and this is how it should be? How can they say that they love me? We might wonder or ask. We take our idea of perfection and we point it at other people. That's called legalism. And all we've really done is replace God's standard with our own. We've achieved it ourselves and then we've demanded that other people obey us. Brothers and sisters, who were the people who did that that Jesus had the sharpest criticism toward when he was walking on this earth? Pharisees. Why is that so bad? Well, because it makes everything that Jesus did meaningless. If you can set your own standard and you can achieve your own standard, then you don't need Jesus to meet God's perfect and holy standard. And I don't have any sins, or maybe my sins just aren't that bad. Do you see the danger of understanding all of this wrongly? Do you see the two dangerous pitfalls to to sit back and do nothing in licentiousness and and to, to work really hard to set up your own standard and achieve it, which is legalism? And neither one of those understands Jesus and his gospel. And somebody comes along and says, hey, you're not doing anything. Well, you're a legalist. (laughs) Hey, why are you doing so much? Well, I'm a perfectionist, and maybe you're just licentious. So what do we do then? If God's going to use our energy, he's going to use our desire to bring about his will, which excludes doing nothing, but he's going to work out his will in us, which is holiness, that excludes legalism, how does this work? What are we supposed to be doing? Well, we need to keep in mind God's standard of perfect purity, His holiness in love, and we don't set up a different standard. Then because Jesus has saved us from sin and its consequences, we desire and we strive to meet God's standard of total love and holiness, knowing that we're not going to reach it in this life. But every day we see His hand of grace to bring us closer and closer to that standard to bless our efforts and our desires. And we know it's His grace, not our efforts, because we see more and more every day how far short we fall. I'm missing this standard. Even as we become more and more like Jesus, we see how what remains is so far short of Jesus and what He deserves, but we rest not in our ability and how far we've come, not in how well we're doing, but we rest in the truth that our sins are forgiven that we have been blessed by God in Jesus Christ. And we confess those sins, and when we do, when we confess those sins and we repent, we turn away from them, we are forgiven and restored all over again. What a blessing. And so we keep going. We're forgetting what lies behind, and we're straining forward to what lies ahead. We press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We continually press on, and we rest in the perfected work of Jesus. And so even when we do things that are praised by others, we don't rest in that because we know that we fall so far short, that it wasn't perfect, that it wasn't God's perfect standard of holiness in love, but we glorified Him anyway because despite the ways that we've fallen short, He's used it for His glory. And that's why we never stop. That's why we keep going. We rest in Him from beginning to end even as we desire and strive and work, and we avoid both licentiousness and legalism. But if we fall into either wrong side, when we see it, we we call out to Him for forgiveness. 
And he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse so that we can be restored and serve him all over again. And it's all because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. His perfection is acceptable to God and we receive it by grace through faith in Jesus. What a blessing that this risen Savior gives to us. That we can be blessed by God. That we can be restored and forgiven even when we sin. Number three. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ leads us into the correct understanding of God's Word. A correct understanding of God's Word. Now, let's go backwards. We're going backwards through the Gospels. Look at Luke, the end of Luke, chapter 24. At the beginning of chapter 24 of Luke, again, Jesus has risen. Just as John said, Peter ran to the tomb and it's empty. And just as John had said, Peter goes home marveling at what had happened. He goes home, doesn't understand. In verse 13, two disciples, not the original 12 or or even 11 now, but two men who had been following Jesus, they're walking in sadness from Jerusalem down to Emmaus. It's it's about a seven-mile trip. Jesus approaches, and again, they don't recognize him. He asks what they're talking about. Well, they're so sad. They say, you know, how could you possibly not know what's going on? concerning Jesus of Nazareth. You know, we thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel, but then he died. And then on top of that, to make it worse, some women said the tomb is empty. They said angels appear to them and said he's alive. We verified the tomb is empty, but we haven't seen him. We don't know what's going on. They're just sad. They're down. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus says, in other words, all of this had to happen that Christ should suffer and die. And you would have known that if you had believed the prophets. A shorthand way of talking about the Old Testament. So verse 27, beginning with Moses, that's the beginning of the Old Testament. And all the prophets, that's all the way through to the end of the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the entire Old Testament, the things concerning himself. The risen Lord Jesus was correctly interpreting the scriptures for them so that they would understand that Jesus is the theme of the Scriptures. All of the Scriptures are all about Jesus. And he led them into what that understanding meant after he died, that he had to die, and then he had to rise. Well, they learned it, but they still didn't recognize him until they sat to eat with him, and he broke bread and blessed it. And as soon as they saw that, they went, oh, that, and then he disappeared. Oh, they said, oh, didn't our hearts burn within us? Was it? I mean, when he was talking, and he, just, he disappeared, and now he's gone again. So they ran to Jerusalem. It's a seven-mile trip. It's nighttime. It's dark. But they ran the seven miles back to Jerusalem. They meet up with the 11 disciples, and they tell them all about it. Verse 36, as they were talking, here's he, here he is again. Jesus again appears in the middle of them and pronounces peace. And they think he's a ghost. Ah! <laughs> They're so frightened. Jesus says, don't be frightened, don't be troubled, it's me. And he goes on to prove that it's him. He's not a ghost, he's really alive. He's physically risen from the dead. He even eats in front of them. He's just as alive now as he was before his death. It was a true resurrection. So now look at verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets... And the Psalms, 
the, the, the beginning, the end, and the middle. All of it was about Jesus, must be fulfilled. And so again, he points them back to the Scriptures. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their mind. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The risen Jesus taught about himself from the Word of God, from the Scriptures that are all about him. That's why Paul can so, so confidently write in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the Word of God that teaches us who God is. The Word of God teaches us who we are, teaches us who the Savior is and why we need him to be our Savior so that we can be saved by him. And the risen Lord Jesus Christ is the one who enables that in our minds and hearts through his spirit. And so in our notes, a true follower of the risen Lord Jesus Christ comes to understand the word of God more completely. More completely. And we say it that way because we'll never understand the fullness of all that there is in the word of God. But, but we're going to strive. We're going to try. We're going to do our best to do all that we can to soak it all up. To, to get it into our minds, into our hearts for his glory. Finally, the last one for this morning, number four. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ leads us into purposeful mission. Purposeful mission. We'll go to Matthew chapter 28. You say, wait a minute, in my Bible there's another gospel. <laughs> we've been to John, we've been to Luke, we're going to Matthew. What happened to Mark? Well, Mark includes Jesus' resurrection. Mark's gospel includes the women alarmed at an angel, and they were told to go tell the disciples and Peter. They fled and were afraid, and that's the end of what we know for 100% sure that God inspired through Mark. Verses 9 through 20 of the end of Mark, Mark 16, is debated whether Mark actually wrote that. So, it really, it has the same information that Matthew 28 has anyway. So that's why we're just going to go straight to Matthew. At the end of Matthew, in chapter 28, again, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus has risen. Have we said that enough this morning yet? <laughs> Jesus is risen. He, may, he meets the women, and they worship him. The guard and the chief priests and the elders, this is hilarious. They came up with a lie to tell people that's still not believable today. Nobody who's even like halfway acquainted with the facts believes that every single Roman soldier fell asleep at the tomb, that the disciples were able to sneak up, roll the giant stone away, take out a dead body, and convince everybody that, it, that he rose, and then convince everyone so much that they believed it that they were willing to die, and all of them did die, and were persecuted for this teaching that Jesus rose from the grave. Nobody actually believes this made-up, terrible story that's acquainted with the facts. But the disciples went to Galilee, and Jesus met them there, and they worshipped him, even while some doubted. But here's what the risen Lord Jesus tells his followers and leads his followers into just before he ascends into heaven. Verse 18. I'm a little bit powerful, Jesus says. No, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a lot of authority. Here's what Jesus did, does with his authority. Here's what he commands us to do. If you're following Jesus, here is his command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. By his very presence with us, he will lead us into all nations to make disciples. And the way we do that is not to withhold anything that he has said, but to teach them all that he has commanded so that they observe it, they obey it also, they become followers of Jesus. And they will be, that will happen, that will begin as they begin to follow Jesus with that one-time identification with him in baptism, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then it will continue in their life as they continue to follow him and make other disciples. So a true follower of the risen Lord Jesus Christ will make disciples. We who are followers of Jesus will make other followers of Jesus. Now, I want to encourage you here because you who are following Jesus are constantly learning about him through his word. You have his very presence among you. Making disciples is not something to be afraid of. This is, this is more important. This is better really than any method that we can come up with because we know Jesus and we know what he has said. You know, when you find a new restaurant that's really good and you want to tell your friends about that restaurant, oh, the food was so great, the service was awesome, they were on top of it, what method do you use to tell people about that restaurant? <laughs> There's no method, right? You just tell them all, and they'll ask you a question. Well, who's the manager? Uh, I don't know about that. But the food was so great, right? You don't have to know everything about that restaurant. You just know the big stuff. <laughs> you know what's important. You don't need a method to talk about your love for your spouse, the person that you love so much, the person you spend so much time with, the person that you admire and respect and love. You could talk about that person all day long, and you don't need a method. We don't need a method to talk about Jesus. We just know him more and love him more. And if somebody asks a question, well, you know, I, I don't know about that, but I know who he is. I know what he's done. I don't have to be afraid of questions. Well, what, what would you say about evolution? I would say that God made the world, and because he made the world, he made it perfect. And even though it was perfect, we messed it up. We brought sin into the world, and so Jesus came to save us from our sins. Right? We don't have to have an answer for every single question. We can study, and we can learn, and we can grow, and we can be able to do that. But most of the people that we talk to are not going to be punching us with all kinds of angry questions. Maybe genuine questions. Who is this to you? Why does he matter? Because he's God, because he's man, because he came to this world as one of us. He humbled himself to be one of us, to live perfectly, which we could never do. And then he died taking my sin, giving me his righteousness when I believe in him through faith and repentance so that I understand why he came. And then he died to pay my penalty, but then he rose from the grave three days later. There's no... Now, sometimes methods can be helpful, so I'm not putting methods down. <laughs> I'm going to mess up in life. But when I do, and other people see it, I don't have to hang my head in shame and say, oh, Jesus, I just brought shame on your name and I'll never be able to be a follower again. No, he restores and he forgives. And then as people watch you and they see that you've messed up and they know that you messed up and then you confess, you turn away from it in love, you, 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 you know, you experience and you feel and you know the grace and forgiveness of God, they see that and they go, wow. You don't have to be perfect. 
No, Jesus was. Jesus is. It, it, this is part of how God uses each of us in the life of the people around us. They'll see you and hear you sinning less and less. But when you do, you don't take it lightly, sweep it under the rug, you confess it, and, and you, you receive forgiveness all over again and re- restoration. Because God is faithful and just. Not because we've suddenly started deserving it, but because God is faithful, because He is just. And you keep on going, you keep on following Jesus, and you're blessed as you do. He is risen. He is risen. He is alive, brothers and sisters. Let's follow him. God, we praise you for that truth, Lord, the truth of our risen Savior. Lord, we even praise you for the truth that you've revealed to us, that we are sinners. God, that we have sinned against you. And Father, there is nothing that we can do to cleanse ourselves from that except for Jesus. Lord, because of your perfect Son, your powerful Son. He came and He endured every temptation, Lord. He endured every kind of temptation to, to the, the most intense that we could ever imagine, yet He never failed one time. He lived His perfect life for you and for your glory, and He did it because He loved us. Father, He took our sins to the cross. He paid for our sins, Father. And Lord, then He died to pay the penalty that we deserved. God, His perfect righteousness was not left hanging out there, but God, it was given to us so that when you see us who believe in Jesus, you see Jesus' perfect righteousness given to us. Oh, God, thank you. Father, thank you for Jesus' righteousness. Thank you for His life. God, thank you for His death, even though it was a time of darkness, Lord. It was unjust. It was not fair that He would die. God, He did it willingly. He did it, Lord, to save us because of his love for us. He did it because of his love for you. And Lord, when he died, Father, that wasn't the end of the story. Lord, so many around us follow things that are dead, people who are dead. But God, we have a risen, living Savior, and we serve the living, almighty God. Father, thank you. Thank you that he rose from the grave. Lord, that he is not dead and he will never die again, Father. He is risen once and for all. He's seated at your right hand. God, he prays for each one of us in here now. God, thank you for your many blessings in him. We pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful to tell others about him, to live out our life for him and his glory and for your glory and exaltation. Father, thank you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus because we're not worthy to ask all of this, but he is. We praise him. We exalt him. We serve him. We love him. Father, we praise you and thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.